For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Thanks, Jenny. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good to see you guys. Uh, For those of you I don't know, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you with us this morning. And yes, we are in the book of Judges. This is our third week. And you might be wondering if we're in the book of Judges, then why was our scripture reading for the day from the book of 1 Corinthians? I'll explain more about that in a little while as we get into the teaching for today. We're in Judges 3, verses 7 through 31. And the last two weeks have really been prologue weeks where we've kind of looked at an overview of the book of Judges. Today, we're really going to dive into our first actual stories of the Judges, and we're going to look at three in one day, uh, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, in a sermon that I've called, God Can Use Anyone. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray, and then I'd like to dive into this passage and spend some time unpacking it together. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather together. God, I am mindful right now of what a joy and what a privilege it is uh, to be able to gather together like this uh, without fear of repercussion or without duress. God, I know that in the world, many of our Christian brothers and sisters right now are gathering together at great risk to themselves because of um, either authorities or, or people groups that are hostile to Jesus, hostile to the scriptures, hostile to the gospel. And so God, I pray today that we would not take this uh, opportunity for granted. God, may we have joy in our hearts that you have allowed us to gather like this. May we have hearts and minds that uh, seek to be attentive to your word. And Holy Spirit, we invite your presence to come right now and to do in our hearts the work that we need to be done. God, whether uh, for those who are Christians, God, would you convict us of sin and transform us from the inside out? God, for those who are here today who are not yet Christians, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel, God, we want to all be changed today. God, my prayer is that not a single person who is in this room this morning would leave here the same as when we walked in. And God, may it not be for our glory, may it be for your glory, and may we get to experience a lot of joy in that. We pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Uh, I have a quick question. Uh, How many of you like enjoy cooking? Does anybody enjoy cooking? Okay, a good number of you. I know there are some who you cook because your family, you don't want them to starve, but you don't enjoy it. Uh, Others of you, you enjoy cooking. I enjoy cooking and I like combining different flavors. And what's fun about cooking, my my wife and I are very different. My wife's a by the book sort of a person. She sees a recipe, she follows the recipe, and she is, you know, make sure it's done exactly to a science. I have heard of things called recipes, but when I cook, I just experiment a little bit. Even uh, tonight, I'm planning on barbecuing some salmon. I made a brine last night, and my brother-in-law was over at the house, and, and I'm just mixing up this brine. He's like, wow, you're really precise, aren't you? And I'm just throwing stuff in the liquid and just getting ready to go. I'm just, I like combining different flavors. And, and you know that there are certain flavors where, you know, they're just, they're safe, right? Like vanilla, that's a safe flavor, uh, unless you're talking about something like tacos. But overall, like vanilla, you know, we even use the term vanilla as to mean like bland or safe or kind of boring. And then there's other things like, you know, mango habanero salsa. Like there's no way this is going to work. And then you eat it like that's all I ever want to eat, right? What I love about God is I love that God is a creative God. I remember when I was a kid, my dad and I were having a conversation and my dad was just saying like, isn't it amazing? God could have made everything taste like tofu, but he didn't. God made cayenne pepper and vanilla and all sorts of flavors and herbs and spices. God is a creative God, amen? And I'm thankful that we live in a world where the the beauty of God's creativity is on display. 
And as we look at this story today, as we look at these three different judges, you're going to see that there are three wildly different flavors present in these, in these three stories we're looking at. We're going to see uh, three different judges who come from three different backgrounds, three different life stories, three different approaches to their deliverance of God's people. But the one common thread through all of it is that God gets the credit, God gets the glory, and, and that it's a creative power on display. And so that really is the big idea of where we're headed today. We're going to see that God delights in using people who don't measure up to man's expectations. And nowhere is this more on display than in the person and work of Jesus. And friends, let me just emphasize to you, even in that, the big idea that God, he doesn't just do it. He delights in doing it. I believe that we serve, we worship a God who has a little smirk and a little twinkle in his eye when he does surprising and unexpected things to rescue and redeem his people. Do you agree with me on that? I think there's a, there's a a joy, a mirth in the heart of God, even as he just kind of blows away all of our expectations. So we're going to look at these judges today and just by way of a little bit of overview, as we get into the book of Judges, we, we've looked at the prologue the last couple of weeks, but this week we're going to start getting into the judges themselves. And there are six major judges. They are Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And by major, what I really mean is they, they have a significant portion of a story. They're, they're talked about, their story is told in some measure. And uh, obviously you look through that list, there are some like Othniel and Deborah who are put forward as just almost ideal, like just really, really, really good leaders. The Bible doesn't have hardly anything bad to say about uh, Othniel or Deborah at all. You also have guys like uh, Samson or, goodness, Jephthah, who's kind of like a mob boss. He's like Tony Soprano. We'll get into that uh, in a few months. There are six minor judges, those who are just mentioned in brief passing. We don't know much about their story. There's Shamgar, Tola, Jair, Ibzen, Elon, and Abdon. Again, any of you expectant mothers, there's your list right there. Start planning appropriately. There is also in the middle of the book of Judges, there's one anti-judge named Abimelech. Uh, He's the son of Gideon. He's not really ever a judge. He is just a bad guy that gets a devoted section of scripture to him. Uh, So he's kind of a hinge turning point in the middle of judges. And and by the way, I've said this before, but I'll remind you, when we're talking about judges, you need to remember, we're not talking about guys in black robes with a hammer. We're not talking about TV judges like Judge Alex. What we're talking about judges, we're talking about like military tribal leaders, people who are more warriors. You need to think it's more like Judge Dredd, okay? You need to understand that this is more what we're talking about, right? And, and somebody this morning, one of our tech guys were like, hey, thanks for putting up the Judge Dredd, uh, the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd instead of the newer one. I'm like, what newer one? Exactly, right? So if you got your Bibles, Judges 3, starting in verse 7, let's start by looking at the story of Othniel. Verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. All right, we're off to a great start so far here this morning. This is part of that judge's cycle. This is what happens over and over again. The people sin, they cry out for help. God sends a deliverer. This is the repeated cycle throughout the book. So get used to reading verses like that. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Uh, if you weren't here last week, go listen to it on the website. Uh, very, uh, very, that's a meaningful statement right there. It's a very, uh, uh, packed and loaded thing for them to say they're worshiping these foreign gods. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, now I'm going to pause for a moment here. This this guy, Cushan Rishathaim, uh, we don't know a lot about him. And actually, that's not necessarily even a proper name. Cushan, it, it just means from the region of Cush. It's kind of modern day Iraq, possibly Syria, kind of northern Iraq area. You can go there. And then Rishathaim is a word. It's a, it's a doubling of the word Risha, which just means bad or wicked. So it's this guy, he's double bad. And then there's a, something happening in the Hebrew when you, when you look in the English translation, you don't see it. When you look in the Hebrew, this word Mesopotamia 
Mesopotamia is, again, kind of this area in, in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, modern-day Syria. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say Mesopotamia. It says Aram Naharayim. And so uh, scholars and, and commentators have pointed out that there's this rhyming there. Kushan Rishathayim from Aram Naharayim. And you don't have to be a biblical scholar to hear that rhyme. And you know what Aram Naharayim means? It means from the double rivers, the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates River. It's this region. So what it is, scholars have said, you know what this is? This is a nickname for this bad king. He's double bad from the double river, which is, that's kind of cool, right? You don't see that in the English. You see that in the Hebrew. And, and, and what it means is, you know, the people of God are oppressed. They're, they're beaten down. Maybe they can't overthrow the king, but you know what they can do? They can make fun of his name. And so that's what's going on here is a little bit of protest art in the book of, of uh, Judges. And it says in verse 9, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, let's just pause on that for a moment. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, there are different words that are used in the original language, in the Hebrew language, for crying out or for repenting or for asking God for help. And, and there's a little bit of a debate. There's a little bit of a controversy among Bible scholars, commentators, pastors, over whether or not the people of Israel are truly repenting to God. They're crying out, they're asking for help, but what we don't really know is the state of their hearts. We don't know if this is just a, help, I feel miserable, or if this is a God, we have sinned against you and we need your help. And so it's a good opportunity for us to just explore briefly the idea of repentance. And so uh, this is my, my first kind of point I want to make today is this. True repentance is a gift from God that breaks our hearts and turns us to him. Okay? And there, those are three really important aspects. It's a gift from God. It really genuinely breaks our hearts and it turns us to him. It doesn't turn us downward. It doesn't turn us inward. It turns us upward to God in Christ. Let me explain uh, a little bit what I mean. Um, First of all, in 2 Corinthians 7, the apostle Paul says that there's a difference between what we would call godly grief versus worldly sorrow. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to, uh, this is New Testament. This is thousands of years after the book of Judges, but he's writing this letter to the people in Corinth and he's saying, hey, you know, I, I know I had some hard words to say to you. I know I gave you a rebuke, but I'm really grateful because I saw that it, it didn't just lead to worldly sorrow. It actually led to godly grief and it ended up in true repentance. The difference between worldly sorrow and godly grief is godly grief is sorrowful and sad that we have broken the heart of God, whereas worldly grief is usually just sorry that you got in trouble. Just kind of sorry that things aren't going well. Sorry that there's a mess. Ugh, I wish things were different. Not I wish I was different. I wish I was transformed. I just wish circumstances were different. Be honest. Have you ever experienced worldly sorrow? I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry my spouse is angry with me. I'm sorry my boss found out. Instead of saying, I am sorry that I've sinned against heaven. Any of you who are parents, you ever had that moment with your child? Hey, can you please tell your sister that you're sorry for stabbing her in the thigh with a pencil? Like, I'm sorry. Like, oh, the sincerity is just pouring out of you, right? Again, maybe it's just my kids. I, all of yours are much more heartfelt in their repentance. We, we've seen that example. And, and you can see it more obviously sometimes in children. But the truth is, it doesn't matter if you're 6 or 86, sometimes we struggle to grow out of that. Sometimes we fall into worldly sorrow instead of true godly grief. The second thing is true repentance is itself a gift from God. In the book of 2 Timothy, again, the apostle Paul is writing, he's writing to one of his young pastoral protégés and he's, he's talking about how, how um, you need to correct your opponents with gentleness. Don't blast them. Don't look to always be so combative. Correct them with, with gentleness because who knows? Paul says, God may grant them repentance And they may come to their senses and get set free from the snare, the trap of the devil. You never know when God's going to turn a wolf into a sheep. So be gentle in your corrections, the Apostle Paul is saying. But the point in that verse is he says it's a gift from God. God may grant them repentance. So repentance is a gift from God. So here's the thing, friends. Even if you do a really, really good job of repenting, you don't get to take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Someday when you get to heaven and if, if, you know, St. Peter at the pearly gates, I don't think that's real, but if he was to say, hey, why should I let you into heaven? You don't get to say, well, because I repented so good. No, because God was gracious to me. 
He gave me the gift of repentance. He broke my heart. He drew me to himself. Do you see that, friends? So we can't take credit for our perfect repentance. And, and, and the third point is this. It's not about our perfect repentance anyways. It's about our perfect savior. Even if we did repent perfectly, if we didn't have a perfect savior to repent to, we've got no hope. The book of Ephesians, Paul again, he says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of your own doing. It's not of work so that no one may boast. So friends, this is a picture of what true repentance looks like. It's a gift from God that has our eyes focused on Jesus, not ourselves. Oh, look at how good I repented. No, it's look at how good my savior is. And it's not just sorry that you got caught. It's sorry that there was a sin against God. Now, in light of that definition, friends, do you think the people of Israel were genuinely repentant? We're not going to take a vote. Just ponder that in your heart. Here's the thing. I don't know. If I had to guess, if I had to, to, to um, you know, make, a, make a choice, I would say probably not because they just keep cycling down further and further and further. It seems like they're more just sorry that they're in trouble. But you know what's good about our God? Again, even though they're probably not truly repentant, they're just crying out to God for some help, he's so loving and so gracious and so merciful that he still raises up help and deliverers for them. That's our God, isn't it? Not good news. So let's look at, look at this first deliverer, a, a, a noble deliverer. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, son of Kenaz. Say Othniel. That's pretty good. All right, you guys got one confusing Bible name. You can pronounce it. Very good. Use that at uh, you know, parties coming up at your leisure. Uh, he's Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He led Israel. He ruled over Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia, uh, the, the double bad from the double river, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over double bad. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Okay. There it is. That's our first story, our first judge. You guys are like, hey, this, you said it was going to be bad. No, this is a good one. This is one of the few good ones. Here, we, we don't get a ton about Othniel, but we can know a few things. The first thing we can know about Othniel is he comes from a good family background. He is related to Caleb. Caleb is one of the two spies Joshua and Caleb, they went into the promised land. There were 12 total. 10 of them came back and said, we can't do it. God won't help us. The giants are too big. The walls are too thick. We just need to go back to the wilderness. And there were two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who said, forget that. Our God's bigger than those giants. Our God is stronger than those walls. Let's move in and take possession of the promised land that God's given to us. So Joshua and Caleb had faith in God and they got to lead the people into the promised land. Othniel's like his, his nephew or at least some sort of a, a semi-close relation. So he comes from a good family background. He comes from a good pedigree. The other thing we know about Othniel, if you were here the first week, is he has a great wife. His wife was sharp. His wife was assertive. His wife said, hey, we want property rights. We want inheritance. We want the good land with a, with a fountain. So Othniel's like, he's got a good family background. He's a war hero. He's got a, a good wife. Like this is the guy that's kind of got it going on. I imagine that when he smiles, a little ding appears off of one of his teeth, right? He's just a good dude. The third thing though, and this is the most important thing we need to see about Othniel, is it says that he led by the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you guys catch that when we we're reading those verses? It said that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. Here's the truth, friends. It doesn't matter if you come from a good stock. It doesn't matter if you have a great spouse. It doesn't matter if your teeth are as shiny white as they could possibly be. If you don't have the Holy Spirit of God, your leadership is not going to last. Othniel's leading by the power of the Holy Spirit and the writer of this book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes sure to point that out to us. So it doesn't matter that he's a good guy and comes from good stock. It's all about God's empowering presence in his life to help him to do that which he was called to do. And friends, the same is true for us. The same is true for us. 
It doesn't matter whether you come from a good family background or a not so good family background. It doesn't matter if you uh, have a, a master's degree or if you uh, have a hard time spelling GED. It doesn't matter what you've come from. If you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, you're missing out on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You're missing out on what it means to be able to lead and to be able to live the life that God has planned for you. So may we always remember that it's not about us and our skills and our abilities. It's about the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. So that's Othniel. That's the first one. Uh, his story is not full of a lot of colorful details. He's actually so good and so squeaky clean that you almost could kind of get set up to thinking, well, this is, this is going to be a fun book. Uh, this is going to be good. It's going to be encouraging. Uh, Othniel actually serves as maybe you could almost use the word a template for what you would want to expect or what should be happening going forward. Othniel's vanilla, right? It's good. It's safe. Everybody likes it. It is what it is. But then we turn to the next judge, Ehud, and the story goes very mango habanero salsa real quick. Continuing on in verse 12. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's our story again. It's a cycle. Number one, I want you to see something. Who strengthened this king? It says the Lord did. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago that God is sovereign in human affairs. God God is not distant from all of this. There's actually the grace of God present here because he is unwilling to let his people just wander in sin and idolatry. He's going to force the issue by raising up this this wicked king to to basically force it. Hey, will you follow me or will you follow uh, these false gods? The other thing about Eglon is, again, this is kind of a mocking name. His name means little fat cow. Verse 13, uh, it says he's a Moabite, by the way. Moabites were kind of distant relatives of the Israelites. It's, um, Moabites were descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. If you remember the story of Abraham and Lot from back in the book of Genesis, this is where the Moabite people comes from. So he's, he's the little fat cow from the relatives of Lot. It says he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, So he's building a coalition and he went and defeated Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. That is not Orlando, okay? That is Jericho. If you would just finish reading the book of Joshua and you moved into Judges, you should go like, oh no, Jericho, that was like the first big battle. That was the first big win. And now they've lost the city again to this this little round cow from Moab. And it says that the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Years, 18 years, they're in oppression. 18 years, they're having to serve this really bad king. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Again, we don't know if this is true repentance. We don't know if this is having to do with their idolatry or just that they're uncomfortable because this king is is essentially milking them dry. They cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. All right. Do we have any lefties here? Can you raise your ink-smudged hands, please? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Ehud is a Benjamite, and he's a left-handed man. This is, this, is, uh, this is funny. This is biblical humor. Why? Well, first of all, a left-handed man is being pointed out specifically because, A, it was viewed as a pretty serious deficiency in the ancient world, okay? It was it basically, would, you know, this would get you on disability, all right, if you were a left-handed person. But he's also from the tribe of Benjamin. And do you know what Benjamin means? Son of the right hand. So he's lefty from the righties. Like, it's just weird, okay? Uh, the, the biblical author is having some fun here. The biblical author is going to have a lot of fun with the story of Ehud. Just trust me, we keep going. But you need to see that this is looked at. This would be viewed, if you were in that culture, if you were in that context, this is not a good thing. The Lord raised up a deliverer, but oh no, he's left-handed. This is not going to go well for us. Let's keep reading. The people of Israel sent tribute by him, by Ehud, 
to Eglon, king of Moab. So they have to pay tribute. They have to send money or food or animals. They have to send money. And so Ehud is the one who makes the delivery. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, two edges, a cubit in length. That's about the length of a man's uh, arm. And he bound it under his right thigh under his clothes. Now, why, why are we getting all these details? First of all, because the Bible is true. This is not mythology. This is not some sort of made up story. These are real factual details about something that really took place. The word of God can be trusted. And the authors are putting these details in there to let us know, hey, something's going down. What you need to understand is because he was a lefty, we'll see this in a minute, and it says he bound the sword to his right thigh, what most scholars and commentators believe is that he was somehow able to bypass the security protocols that would have been in place for a king like Eglon. He got past TSA, okay? He, he's, he's doing something unexpected. Normally, if you were a righty, you'd put the sword on your left thigh so you could draw it out. He did it on the right thigh. The security guards didn't think to check I don't know how busy they were. Maybe there was a long line. He only had two legs, but whatever. He got past security. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Again, details in the scripture that are relevant to the story. The point of this in pointing it out, not only is his name the, the, the fat bull, but you see here is a leader who is gorging himself off of the the backs of the people. He's milking them dry so that he can fatten himself. The book of Judges is full of examples of leadership, both good and bad. Friends, this is a bad leader. This is a really bad king. He's he's making himself fat off of the prophets and the proceeds of the people of Israel. Verse 18, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So Ehud's going with a crew of people. He sent away the people who had the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. All right, so he's got a crew. They're all rolling together. They deliver this, they leave. And then he says, they get to the idols at Gilgal, exactly how far that is. He said, hold on a second. I need to go back and talk to the king privately. And he says, I have a, I have a secret message for you. Again, there's so much happening in the Hebrew. Forgive me for diving into the language so much, but there's some really interesting things that come to life when you, when you look in the language. The word for message is the Hebrew word devar. And it can, it can mean I have a word for you, I have a message for you, but it also can mean I have a thing for you. It's just one of those words that has kind of a dual meaning. I have a word for you or I have a thing for you. So here, our English translators translated it as message, but it could be translated as, hold on second king, I have something for you. See, uh, see what, if you're reading this, again, the original Hebrew mindset, you're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. I see what maybe is going to happen here. They already told me about that sword he had hidden on his thigh. I wonder if that's the thing that he has. So he turned back. He went back to the king. The king commanded silence. And all of the attendants went out of his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. It's hot. It's the desert. He's the king. He's got a nice cool room. He's by himself. Ehud's coming in. It says he arose for, sorry, Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. What's going to happen? Is the king rising from his seat because he's ready to hear the message from God? Is the king rising from his seat because he's expecting some sort of, I don't know, maybe special favors or encounters with this man who's coming into his chamber alone. There's all sorts of uh, different opinion on what's going on here. All we know is the king is standing up. He's a, he's a big guy, probably doesn't stand up just for anybody, but he's standing now. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. (sighs) Then Ehud went, this is not the vanilla story anymore, right? Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Whoa, okay. Just take a moment. He, he commits this assassination. Some very graphic detail is given to us. 
And then Ehud just kind of walks out, right? closes the door, locks it, and leaves. When he had gone, verse 24, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of this roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Um, I think that in the previous verse when it said, and the dung came out, I think they could smell something was going on. Oh, he's, just, he's taking a potty break here. That said the parent of the young children. And they waited, they waited until they were embarrassed. They're like, okay, should somebody go in and help this guy out? What's going on? They waited so long until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Okay, friends. So we've now gotten into one of the more colorful stories in the book of Judges. And you start to ask the question, why are all these details put in there? What's, what's with the dung? And what's with the going to the bathroom? And what's with all the, you know, the potty talk? And what's with, what's with the, you know, the overly descriptive nature of this story? And friends, I believe it's because this. God wants us to know that he's not afraid of our messy lives and our messy situations. Sometimes we shy away from messy situations. Sometimes we shy away when when things are really awkward or really uncomfortable, both for ourselves and for other people, okay? So imagine, if you will, that you've done something, maybe sinful, maybe embarrassing, maybe shameful. You know that feeling of not wanting to open up and talk to somebody else. What are they going to think about me? What are they going to say about me? This is messy. This is not clean. I, I didn't just walk into church on a Sunday morning and shake hands and say, I'm blessed. I'm doing great. You know, hashtag blessed. I'm, everything is wonderful, right? Do you know that feeling, friends? Be honest. Do you know that feeling of what it's like to want to pull back and to want to shy away and to want to hide? But then, but, but what's even more, have you ever been in a community group? You ever been at somebody's house? You ever been even just out in the lobby or, or somewhere out in the grocery store and you're talking to somebody? Hey, how are you doing? Like, not good. And then they start to spill their guts and you realize that this is a messy situation. Be honest. You have sometimes taken a step or two back, haven't you? It can feel awkward. It can feel uncomfortable. Oh, I, I, I didn't really mean to talk about your messy divorce that you're going through right now in the middle of the produce section at Fred Meyer, but I guess we're doing this, are we? Oh, it's, it's community group. I thought we were supposed to talk about, you know, how everything is, you know, just in our lives are so good, but this person really just got raw and they confessed that they looked at pornography last week. I guess we're doing this, huh? God is not afraid of our messy lives and our messy situations. That's good news, amen? That's good news, One commentator says this, the glory of this text is that it tells us that Yahweh, God, is not a white-gloved, standoffish God out somewhere in the remote left field of the universe who hesitates to get his strong arm dirty in the yuck of our lives. The God of the Bible does not hold back in the wild blue yonder somewhere waiting for you to pour Clorox and to spray Lysol over the affairs of your life before he will touch it. Whether you can comfortably put it together or not, he is the God who delights to deliver his people even in their messes and likes to make them laugh again. He is the God who allows weeping to endure for a night but sees that joy comes in the morning. That's our God, Sound City. And the more we get to know that God and the more we see how he is unafraid to dive into the messy situations in our lives, the more that we're free to dive into the messy situations in other people's lives without shame, without fear, without condemnation. That's the kind of church that I hope and pray that we would be. My hope and prayer is that Sound City Bible Church would not be the kind of church where everyone comes in and just has to act like and pretend like you've got it all together. Friends, I know there's messes. I don't know everybody in this room, but even just looking around, I know enough of you to know there's messy situations. There's messy situations in my life. And the starting point for God to do his most amazing work is being honest and being truthful. The story continues. Ehud escaped while they delayed. He passed beyond the idols and escaped to uh, Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. That's one of the tribes, one of the tribes of Israel in this, this area. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites into your hand. 
So they went down after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest. The land had shalom for 80 years. And that's the story of Ehud. That was a little spicier flavor, right? Othniel, Ehud. One more judge for today, Shamgar. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. The end. <laughs> All right, if Othniel was, you know, vanilla and Ehud's like, you know, mango habanero, that's like some parsley sprinkled on top and just kind of move on, right? Othniel, not a lot is said about Othniel. Not a lot is, you know, described about him. Not a lot of background is given to him. But I, I think we can know a, a few things if we, if we look at what is being said in this one verse. The first thing we can see is he comes from an obscure background, Okay. He does not come from a good family line. He does not have a, a, a good pedigree. He actually comes from sort of a mixed background. When you look at his name, Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. It's a Canaanite name. So we don't know if he's Hebrew, whose parents had just so much assimilated the culture that they took on a Canaanite name, or he might actually be of mixed he might be the product of one of those mixed marriages that we talked about before. Again, it's not about the racially mixed marriage, but the religiously mixed marriage. We don't know that for sure, but his, his background is a little bit mixed and muddled. In fact, his dad's name, Anath, is the Canaanite goddess of war. It's the masculine version of the goddess of war. So again, he's not descended from Caleb, one of the great spies that had faith in God. He's descended from the dude who's named after the Canaanite goddess of war. Your dad's named after a goddess. I mean, that's just got to be embarrassing, right? And you've got a Canaanite name. So he's got, a, he's got a mixed background. People look at him suspiciously. Second thing we can see, and this just should go without saying, he's a good warrior, okay? He killed 600 Philistines. It does not say he led the people of Israel. It says he did it. He did it. He killed 600 Philistines. And the third part, and perhaps the most fascinating part about all this, is he was likely a poor farmer because it says that he used, what did he use, Sound City? An ox goad. Do you know what an ox goad is? It is literally a stick with a big sharp point on the end because when you have an ox and you want to goad it to move along, you stab it in the haunches with a spiky stick and it goes, and then it moves forward, right? It's the, this is the ancient Bronze Age equivalent of a cattle prod. Dude went into battle with a cattle prod. The dude went into battle with a pitchfork, right? If you imagine some guy in, in the Appalachians going to, you know, in the battle, he's just by himself with one overall suspender unbuckled and he's got a pitchfork. Like, this is Shamgar and he takes down 600 soldiers all on his own. And you have to understand that it's uh, an implement maybe of shame, it's an implement of at least humility, if not shame, at least humility. He does not come from good stock. He does not come from a good background. He uses this surprising, humble, shameful instrument to defeat the enemies and to fulfill God's purposes. Isn't that amazing? So that's what we can know about Shamgar. And that really leads me to kind of my, my third point for the day, which is this. God delights in using surprising people to accomplish his purposes. God delights in surprising us. You know, as you're going through the story, you look at Othniel, and in our human thinking, we might be tempted to think, well, of course, Othniel. Of course, Othniel delivers God's people. He's descended from Caleb, and he comes from a good background. He was likely trained in warfare. Ehud, oh, that, that, that's, that's a little out of left field, pun intended, right? That's a, that's a bit of a different, okay, I didn't see that one coming Shamgar? Who, Sham who? Shamwow? What are we talking about? But God actually gets great joy out of doing this. In our, in our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 1, we see this. It says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Do you notice that it says it pleased God? To save us, not through worldly wisdom, but through God's wisdom, which looks like foolishness to the world. 
When I say that I, I think God's got a little smirk on his face, a little wink in his eye, that's where I'm getting it from. It pleased God. He's got some joy. It kind of delights him to surprise us. For Jews demand signs. Jews want to see miracles. God parted the Red Sea in the past. God knocked on the walls of Jericho. We're only going to believe if we see miracles. And Greeks or, or Gentiles, the Hellenistic culture of the day, they seek wisdom. We need everything explained to us. We want everything charted out. We need to see everything very logically put together with good rhetorical flourish at the end. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. To people who don't know God, to people who don't know Jesus, what we gather together and preach week in and week out that God saves us, God forgives us through the death on the cross of Jesus Christ, it is absolute foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the most miraculous thing and the most wise thing that truly satisfies what both Jews and Greeks are looking for. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God delights in working through unlikely looking people, unlikely looking redeemers. And nowhere is this more on display than the person of Jesus. You guys know the gospel is present in those stories we just read. You look at that, where's the gospel? I'll, I'll tell you where the gospel is in Judges. Thank you for asking. Here's, here's where the gospel is present. Think about this. Like Othniel, Jesus came from a good family background. Jesus came from a good family background. He is descended, after all, from King David himself. If you read those lineages at the beginning of the book of Matthew, the beginning of the book of Luke, he is descended not only from Abraham, but from King David. He's from the tribe of Judah. That's a good family background. That's good stock. But like Shamgar, Jesus also came from a poor family. When he's traveling with his disciples, he says, you know, foxes have dens and, and birds have nests, but the son of man himself has nowhere to lay his head. His father, his adoptive father, his earthly father, Joseph, was a carpenter, a, a blue-collar man who worked with his hands. They did not live in luxury. He's from the town of Nazareth. When, when people heard he was from Nazareth, one guy goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? It was like the New Jersey of Israel in that time, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So yes, he has a, a good family line like Othniel, but yes, he was very poor like Shamgar. And like Ehud, Jesus appeared weak and deficient according to the world's standards. Who is this prophet? He's out there preaching about the kingdom. He's out there telling everybody about the kingdom of God, but he's not a trained rabbi. He didn't go to school to learn about the word of God. He just, he was a carpenter. He's Joseph and Mary's son from Nazareth. He doesn't look like he should measure up to the world's standards for a teacher, a prophet, a, a spokesperson for God. Number four, but like Othniel, Jesus led by the power of the Holy Spirit. In particular, the gospel of Luke, Luke tells us time and time and time again that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus allowed God, the Holy Spirit, to fill him and to empower him and to lead him and to guide him and to direct him. So he relates to Othniel, the one who, who was himself leading by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Ehud, Jesus defeated the enemy and put him to shame. Ehud put the enemy to shame. He made a gross mess out of this wicked king. The book of Colossians says that when Jesus defeated Satan, he put him to open shame. That the enemy has not only been defeated, but he has had his can kicked all over the place in the words of the great theologian Freddie Mercury, right? Jesus defeated our great enemy, Satan, and has set us free from his bondage. And number six, like Shamgar, Jesus defeated the enemy with the most unlikely tool of all, the cross. The cross. If, if an ox goat is a symbol of shame or, or humility, how much more so is the cross? You know, when you read uh, the, the literature, extra biblical literature around the time of Jesus, people who were crucified, they didn't get talked about. You just didn't talk about the cross. Why? Because it was so shameful. It was so humiliating. It was so embarrassing. You wouldn't speak about it. 
But here come these first Christians, the Apostle Paul saying, we preach Christ crucified. It's, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks because it was so shameful. And yet what looked like the most shameful and humiliating tool, the most shameful and humiliating implement of all, Jesus Christ used to defeat Satan's sin and death. And all who place their faith in Jesus can be saved and can be forgiven of their sins because not only did Jesus die on the cross on the third day, he rose and he lived forevermore. Amen? That's our savior. The gospel is all throughout this story of judges. These three different judges are meant to point us to our one great judge, our one great rescuer, our one great redeemer, Jesus Christ. Now let me close with this. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you to search your own heart because if I was to venture a guess I would guess that there are people here right now in this room who God is calling to follow him, to serve in some way, to be a part of his mission, to be a part of his kingdom, but you have discounted yourself because you're left-handed. And I don't mean that actually left Maybe Maybe you've discounted yourself because you're actually left-handed. But I mean this to say that you have some deficiency you have some thing where you look at yourself and you say, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. I don't have enough good family background. I don't know what I'm doing. I haven't been through seminary. I haven't been through enough training. I don't really feel like I've got the skills. I'm not very good at speaking. I don't talk goodly. All those sorts of things, those excuses that start to come to your mind. But here's the thing. Is it about you? Or is it about God's power working through you? So yes, some people like Othniel, he comes from a great background and of course it makes sense that God uses him. By the way, if you come from a great family background and you do have graduate degrees and you do have some wealth and some money, that doesn't mean that God only uses losers, you know, who are left-handed and have, you know, cattle prods, right? You can be used by God as well. Don't discount yourself for any reason. God delights in using all sorts of types of people. And so I ask you, where is that thing that God is prompting you, calling you to step into? Where is that act of service that he's been been saying, yeah, this is what I have for you. This is what I want you to walk in. And you're sitting back fearful and afraid because you thought you have to be good enough when God says, let my spirit work through you. It's way better that way. He gets the glory, not you. And you get to experience the joy that comes from walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So to the Christians here, I ask you, where are you not fulfilling God's call on your life due to self-doubt, second-guessing, or feelings of inadequacy? To those of you who are here today who are not yet Christians, let me just simply in love tell you, you're the one that's enslaved. You're the one that lies under the power of, of evil, of, of the evil king, the wicked ruler. You're the one that needs to be rescued and redeemed. And while everybody in our world, everybody in our culture is looking for an earthly hero, we're looking for a, a politician, a leader, some, some activist, some hero, I would submit to you that the only hero who can truly rescue us out of the mess that we've made as sinful humans is Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a Christian today, my invitation to you is give your life to Jesus, trust in him, let him lead you, let him deliver you, let him be your joy. Let me pray for us. God, we just come to you right now and we confess that we have relied too much on ourselves. We have relied too much on our own adequacy or inadequacy. And God, my prayer today is that we would rely upon you and your completeness, your wholeness on our behalf. God, thank you for these three stories of, of these three very different leaders, these three very different men. But God, you use them all. And at the end, you are the one that gets the glory, not us. God, I pray for my friends here today. If there's anywhere where they're shrinking back or, or having self-doubt or self-loathing or any of those sorts of things, God, I pray that they would give that to you now as we go into a time of response. May we not make it about ourselves. May we make it about you, your goodness, your power, and our obedience to follow you in what you're calling us to. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Church, we're going to respond now. We're going to respond in a few ways. The first is through the giving of our tithes and of our offerings. Uh, a couple of things I want to say about this. First of all, if you're a guest or a visitor, uh, please know you're not obligated to give. We don't want this to be heavy-handed or weird. But I do want to invite you to give. And for others of you, you maybe are thinking, well, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I don't give a lot. Well, 
Jesus is the one who praised the widow who gave the two copper coins, right? She gave the littlest offering of all and God said that she gave more than the ones who were dropping big bags of money. So I'm just gonna encourage you to be faithful to worship God with what he's entrusted to you. If you need more information on how to give, there's information you can text to give, you can give online, or if you need an envelope for cash, they're out of the Connect desk. While the volunteers are collecting the offering, let me read some discussion questions, some things to help us this week. Uh, Just have good, heartfelt conversations in our homes and community groups. First one is this. What is the difference between genuine repentance and worldly sorrow? How can we grow in true repentance, and how can we remember that our hope is in a perfect savior, not in our perfect repentance. I realize that that's like three questions in one, but they're all, they all go together. So uh, these questions are not meant to be just, you know, mechanically checked off, but just to help you start talking through these issues. Talk about where you're afraid of messy situations. When your life is messy, do you try to hide it? Or when other people's lives are messy, do you shy away and avoid? Let's talk about that. Number three, how is Jesus such an unexpected and surprising savior? And how does God's creativity and salvation make you love him more? And then number four, where are you not fulfilling God's call on your life due to self-doubt, second guessing, or feelings of inadequacy? And how might God be wanting to use your weaknesses for his glory? And then one thing to pray about, because we want to be a praying people as well. So pray that God would use us each individually despite our perceived shortcomings, to share the good news of Jesus, to love and serve people, and to spread the gospel of the kingdom of God. The volunteers are uh, handing out the elements for communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table together here in a moment. This is a celebration, friends. This is a celebration of Christ crucified. What looked like the most foolish thing in the world is actually the greatest joy and the source of our eternal salvation. Let me read from 1 Corinthians um, as they're excuse me, passing out the elements. The apostle Paul says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke this bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as always, there's an invitation to examine oneself. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, as you examine yourselves today, maybe there's an area of weakness or inadequacy in your life that you need to confess to the Lord and you need to give to him. Maybe there's an area where you've said, I I, I know I'm supposed to be doing something, but I've resisted God. Give that to him. Give that to him in repentance. And as you eat today and as you drink of this this meager meal, may it serve to remind you that he is the one who strengthens us by his power, not our own. Amen? We're going to sing as well. I'll invite the musicians to come if they would. They're going to lead us in a time of of singing. This first song uh, is a song of praise. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. And this song talks about, can you even imagine what God would do in our lives, if we allowed him to work through us truly. So I invite you after we pray, I invite you to partake of the table as you're led. And then when you're ready, stand to your feet and let's sing this song out loud together as we praise the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. God, we thank you uh, that it's not about our adequacies or inadequacies. It's about your sufficiency. Lord Jesus, that you have done it all. You've paid the price. You've won the victory And God, we're free to now follow you bravely because we know it's not about us. God, I ask and pray now as we partake of this bread and drink of this cup, God, would you strengthen us and empower us to follow you with more joy and more devotion. And God, may it all be for your glory, not our own. We pray this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Church, I invite you to take of the Lord's table when you're ready and then stand to your feet and sing with us.